0: Part One, Chapter Eleven of Ships That Pass in the Night. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ships That Pass in the Night by Beatrice Harridan. Part One, Chapter Eleven If One Has Made the One Great Sacrifice. There was a suicide in the Kerr House one afternoon. A Dutchman, Vandervelt, had received rather a bad account of himself from the doctor a few days previously, and in a fit of depression, so it was thought, had put a bullet through his head. It had occurred through Marie's unconscious agency. She found him lying on his sofa when she went, as usual, to take him his afternoon glass of milk. He asked her to give him a packet which was on the top shelf of his cupboard. "'Willingly,' she said, and she jumped nimbly on the chair and gave him the case. "'Anything more?' she asked kindly, as she watched him draw himself up from the sofa. She thought at the time that he looked wild and strange, but then, as she pathetically said afterwards, who did not look wild and strange in the Kerr house? "'Yes,' he said, "'here are five francs for you.' She thought that rather unusual, too, but five francs, especially coming unexpectedly like that, were not to be despised, and Marie determined to send them off to that Mutterly at home in the nut brown chalet at Grouche. So she thanked Mynheer van Vandervelt and went off to her pantry to drink some cold tea, which the English people had left, and to clean the lamps. Having done that, and knowing that the matron was busily engaged carrying on a flirtation with a young Frenchman, Marie took out her writing materials, and began a letter to her old mother. These peasants know how to love each other, and some of them know how to tell each other, too. Marie knew, and she told her mother of the gifts she was bringing home, the little nothings given her by the guests. She was very happy writing this letter— The little nut-brown home rose before her. Ach! she said, how I long to be home! And then she put down her pen and sighed. Ach! she said, and when I'm there, I shall long to be here. Da wo ich nicht bin, da ist das Glück. Marie was something of a philosopher. Suddenly she heard the report of a pistol, followed by a second report— She dashed out of her little pantry and ran in the direction of the sound. She saw Varley in the passage. He was looking scared, and his letters had fallen to the ground. He pointed to number 54. It was the Dutchman's room. Help arrived. The door was forced open, and Vandervelt was found dead. The case from which he had taken the pistol was lying on the sofa. When Marie saw that, She knew that she had been an unconscious accomplice. Her tender heart overflowed with grief. Whilst others were lifting him up, she leaned her head against the wall and sobbed. It was my fault, it was my fault, she cried. I gave him the case, but how was I to know? They took her away and tried to comfort her, but it was all in vain. And he gave me five francs, she sobbed, I shudder to think of them. It was all in vain that Varley gave her a letter for which she had been longing for many days. It is from your Mutterly, he said as he put it into her hands. I give it willingly. I don't like the look of one or two of the letters I have to give you, mariechen That Hans writes to you. Confound him! But nothing could cheer her. Varley went away shaking his curly head sadly, shocked at the death of the Dutchman and shocked at Marie's sorrow, and the cheery little postman did not do much whistling that evening. Bernardine heard of Marie's trouble and rang for her to come. Marie answered the bell, looking the picture of misery. Her kind face was tear-stained, and her only voice was a sob bernardine drew the girl to her poor old marie she whispered come and cry your kind heart out and then you will feel better sit by me here and don't try to speak and i will give you some tea in true english fashion and you must take it hot and it will do you good the simple sisterly kindness and silent sympathy soothed marie after a time THE SOBS CEASED, AND THE TEARS ALSO, AND MARIE PUT HER HAND IN HER POCKET AND GAVE BERNARDINE THE FIVE francs. FRAULEIN HOLM, I HATE THEM, SHE SAID. I COULD NEVER KEEP THEM. HOW COULD I SEND THEM NOW TO MY OLD MOTHER? THEY WOULD BRING HER ILL LUCK. INDEED THEY WOULD. THE MATTER WAS SOLVED BY BERNARDINE IN A MASTERLY FASHION she suggested that Marie should buy flowers with the money, and put them on the Dutchman's coffin. This idea comforted Marie beyond Bernardine's most sanguine expectations. "'A beautiful tin wreath,' she said several times. "'I know the exact kind. When my father died, we put one on his grave.' That same evening, during Table d'hote. Bernardine told the disagreeable man the history of the afternoon. He had been developing photographs, and had heard nothing. He seemed very little interested in her relation of the suicide, and merely remarked, Well, there's one person less in the world. I think you make these remarks from habit, Bernardine said quietly, and she went on with her dinner, attempting no further conversation with him. She herself had been much moved by the sad occurrence. Every one in the ker-house was more or less upset, and there was a thoughtful, anxious expression on more than one ordinarily thoughtless face. The little French danseuse was quiet. The Portuguese ladies were decidedly tearful. The vulgar German baroness was quite depressed. The comedian at the Belgian table ate his dinner in silence in fact there was a weight pressing down on all was it really possible thought bernardine that robert allison was the only one there unconcerned and unmoved she had seen him in a different light amongst his friends the country folk but it was just a glimpse which had not lasted long the young-heartedness the geniality the sympathy which had so astonished her during their day's outing astonished her still more by their total disappearance. The gruffness had returned, or had it never been absent? The lovelessness and leadenness of his temperament had once more asserted themselves, or was it that they had never for one single day been in the background? These thoughts passed through her mind as he sat next to her reading his paper, that paper which he never passed on to any one she hardened her heart against him there was no need for ill-health and disappointment to have brought any one to a miserable state of indifference like that then she looked at his wan face and frail form and her heart softened at once at the moment when her heart softened to him he astonished her by handing her his paper here is something to interest you he said an article on realism in fiction or some nonsense like that. You needn't read it now. I don't want the paper again. "'I thought you never lent anything,' she said, as she glanced at the article, "'much less gave it.' "'Giving and lending are not usually in my line,' he replied. "'I think I told you once that I thought selfishness perfectly desirable and legitimate if one had made the one great sacrifice.' "'Yes,' she said eagerly. "'I have often wondered what you considered the one great sacrifice.' "'Come out into the air,' he answered, "'and I will tell you.' She went to put on her cloak and hat, and found him waiting for her at the top of the staircase. They passed out into the beautiful night. The sky was radiantly bejeweled, the air crisp and cold, and harmless to do ill.' in the distance the yodelling of some peasants, in the hotels the fun and merriment side by side with the suffering and hopelessness, in the deaconess's house the body of the Dutchman, in God's heavens God's stars. Robert Ellitson and Bernardine walked silently for some time. "'Well,' she said, "'now tell me.' The one great sacrifice—' he said to himself, is the going on living one's life, for the sake of another, when everything that would seem to make life acceptable has been wrenched away, not the pleasures, but the duties, and the possibilities of expressing one's energies, either in one direction or another, when, in fact, living is only a long, tedious dying. If one has made this sacrifice, everything else may be forgiven." He paused a moment and then continued, "'I have made the sacrifice, therefore I consider I have done my part without flinching. The greatest thing I had to give up, I gave up—my death. More could not be required of any one.' He paused again, and Bernardine was silent from mere awe. "'But freedom comes at last,' he said, "'and some day I shall be free.' When my mother dies, I shall be free. She is old. If I were to die, I should break her heart, or rather, she would fancy that her heart was broken. And it comes to the same thing. And I should not like to give her more grief than she has had. So I am just waiting. It may be months, or weeks, or years. But I know how to wait. If I have not learned anything else, I have learned how to wait. And then. "'Bernardine had unconsciously put her hand on his arm. "'Her face was full of suffering. "'And then?' she asked, with almost painful eagerness. "'And then I shall follow your Dutchman's example,' he said deliberately. "'Bernardine's hand fell from the disagreeable man's arm. "'She shivered. "'You are cold, you little thing,' he said, almost tenderly for him. You are shivering.' "'Was I?' she said with a short laugh. "'I was wondering when you would get your freedom, and whether you would use it in the fashion you now intend.' "'Why should there be any doubt?' he asked. "'One always hopes there would be a doubt,' she said, half in a whisper. Then he looked up, and saw all the pain on the little face. End of chapter 11